0: Daniel 9, we're starting in verse 20 this evening. Daniel 9, verse 20. If you have a Bible, please follow along. Last week, we took a look at Daniel's humble prayer of confession, great prayer of the Bible, and that prayer leads up to our text this evening, which many scholars consider to be one of the most important passages in all the Bible, it's referred to as the 70 Weeks Prophecy. You may see that in the heading of your Bible this, uh, this evening. And the 70 Weeks Prophecy gives the blueprint for how God is go- would send the Messiah, deal with Israel, wrap up human history on this earth. It's like a scene in any good heist movie, right, where uh, the characters all get together around a table and they look at the diagram Of what they're headed for, and then they talk through how the plan is going to unfold, and then the plan is set into motion. Same kind of idea here as Gabriel comes and shares the 70 weeks prophecy with Daniel. Now, the prophecy itself is only four verses, but man, are they packed with information showing the meticulous order of God's program and foretelling the crucifixion, identifying where the Antichrist will come from, what he'll do. And these four verses cover thousands of years of human history. So let's dig on in. We start in verse 20. Daniel says, Now while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. Even though Daniel had been in captivity for more than 60 years, he's probably around 80 years old at this point, he still thinks about things in his spiritual Jewish context. We see he's been praying for the city of Jerusalem, he's praying for Zion, he's thinking about the evening offering, an offering that wasn't happening, by the way. Uh, The city and the temple were gone, they were just gone. But Daniel was never one to think that God had failed or that any of those ideals were to be done away with. He was still setting his watch, as it were, by the temple clock and longing for a city that at that time didn't even exist. He still had faith and hope and trust in the God of Israel, and he thought idealistically about what would have been going on had God's people done what was right. So he's sitting there captive for so many years in Babylon, and he's thinking, you know, if we hadn't blown it and been so unfaithful as a nation, we, this would be the time of the evening sacrifice right now, and uh, he would uh, joy in that. Now, before we get into the prophecy, we get a little bit of angelology here. These interactions are always interesting to examine. We notice, first of all, that on this second visit of Gabriel, Daniel recognizes him right away and he isn't afraid. You know, usually when angels appear in the Bible and come face to face with a human being, uh, people get really frightened. That was the case for Daniel back in chapter 8. When Daniel first saw Gabriel, it says that he was just terrified and fell down on his face. And as is usual in the Bible, the angel has to say, no, it's okay, I'm not going to melt you, stand up, I need to talk to you, those sorts of things. Uh, angels are, are uh, terrible creatures in that sort of literary sense where they're, n- they're not bad. I mean, they're just so powerful and fierce and uh, so full of glory that when a person in the Bible comes face to face with them, almost always the reaction is just to fall over and be super afraid. But notice, this time around, Daniel recognizes Gabriel, hey, I remember you uh, from a few years back. And Daniel seems to remain calm and comforted during their meeting. There's no reassuring from Gabriel, hey, it's okay. Daniel uh, recognized him as if they were old friends. Now, Gabriel's referred to as a man here, but don't let that confuse you. He's an angel. Uh, In fact, Herbert Lufthold points out that the words there in the original language mean the servant, the strong one of the strong God. That's how Daniel described uh, this angel Gabriel. We also note here that apparently... Angels are able to travel at different speeds. In this case, Gabriel has been commanded to fly swiftly, and it's a term that means as fast as possible. Uh, I sort of like to think that Gabriel was waiting in the next room for Daniel to finish his prayer and then popped in when he was done. Hey, I was waiting while you finished that up. There's good reason to think that the prayer we read in the first 19 verses wasn't the whole of Daniel's prayer, but that it was a summary or just part of what he had been praying that day. And uh, angels move pretty quick, especially when they're moving as fast as possible. And so I wonder if Gabriel wasn't eavesdropping a little bit. Verse 22, And he informed me and talked with me and said, "Oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out. And I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. It's interesting to think about the obedience of angels Try to pretend for a moment that you're a supernatural being that can stand in the very presence of the eternal God. You can travel between time and eternity somehow. You have incredible monumental power and capacity and ability and all of this stuff. And the Lord says to you one day in heaven, okay, I need you to go and spell out a prophecy for this human uh, down on the earth in uh, ancient Babylon. I imagine it would be something like us trying to explain the plot of a movie to our dog at home, maybe. And maybe that's not fair. Okay, so how about this? It reminds me of the super technical and accomplished IT guy at work, right? He went to school, he got his computer, computer science degree. He can create amazing programs that can do all sorts of things with a few lines of code. He's part of pushing the limits of what connectivity means in the digital age. And then he gets the trouble ticket at work. Hey, Bill down on the fourth floor needs you to show him how to open his email. <laughs> and the guy's thinking, you know, I can like set up a server farm right now for you if you want. You know, I can write a program that does all of this different stuff and okay, I'll go down there. I have a friend who works as a IT guy for one of the schools. And so this afternoon I said, hey, give me some of the, these kind of calls that you get. Give me some of the calls that uh, are, are a little bit below your pay grade. And one of the ones he talked about, he's like, one I get surprisingly a lot is, hey, my printer's not working. All right, what's happening? Well, I've sent it to print 60 times. And there's a box that says, out of paper, but it won't print. Okay, so what you're gonna need to do, I'll come down and put the paper in there for you, but... I don't know, uh, that's kind of how I think, I, I sometimes wonder if angels are like, okay, that, that's fine, I'll, I'll spell this out for him. But you know what, Gabriel doesn't complain. He's happy to do whatever the Lord asks him to do, whether it seems below his pay grade or not. So now our prophecy begins in earnest. We'll take it in phrases there, starting in verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city, And so here we have the scope and the setting of God's prophetic plan for this world. Let's start with the setting. God's prophetic plan centers on a particular place and a particular people. The place is Jerusalem. The people are the Jews. That doesn't mean that the Lord doesn't have other things he's accomplishing in other places around the world and with other people throughout time. He does, of course, most certainly. He's worked in our lives. He's working all around the world right now. But the focus of Bible prophecy, the focus of God's prophetic program, uh, both past and future, is a particular place, and it's Jerusalem, not New York, not Paris, not Tel Aviv, and it's a particular people, Daniel's people, the Jews, not the church, not all believers in general. You know, in the church... We don't have an earthly holy city, right? If you, if you say to certain religions, hey, if, you're, if you follow Judaism, what's your holy city? Oh, Jerusalem. Hey, if you follow Islam, what are your holy c- cities? Oh, Mecca and Medina. Hey, if you're this or you're that, what are your holy cities? If you say to a, a Christian in the church age, what's your holy city? Well, there isn't one here on the earth. Our holy city is the new Jerusalem whose builder and maker is God. That's what John says in the Revelation. He says, hey, the holy city for the church came down out of heaven. And so this prophetic program that Gabriel's talking about, the setting is Jewish. The epicenter is Jerusalem. That is what God is pointing toward. And now we see the scope of this program. Gabriel says that 70 weeks are determined. Now, the word weeks, when we read that in English, comes pretty loaded, right? It has a very particular meaning attached. We can't think of the word week without thinking of a seven-day period. Uh, but scholars and linguists are very quick to point out that the word here is is better translated as sevens, or heptads, that's a weird word we don't use, it's just a, a word like dozens, but instead of 12, it means seven, right? So what Gabriel is saying here is that 70 sevens are determined for this prophetic program, as if he was saying 70 dozens. So sevens of what, that's the question. Groups of seven what? Days, weeks, years, millennia. Naturally, there's a lot of argument here, but uh, especially coming from those who don't interpret the Bible, uh, or at least Bible prophecy in a literal futurist sense. But we understand this to be saying that there are 70 sets of seven years that pertain to God's plan, which has partially unfolded and will ultimately come to pass at the culmination of human history, no matter what. We identify these sevens as groups of years, not days or weeks, but years, groups of years for biblical reasons and historical reasons. Uh, first, the biblical reasons. There's a couple of, or there's a variety of things we could cite, but here are just a couple. Remember when Laban tripped, tricked Jacob, his son-in-law, into marrying Leah when he wanted to marry Rachel? Well, in their discussion the day after, when Jacob is hollering mad, uh, Jacob says, hey, why did you deceive me, to Laban? And here's what Laban answers in Genesis 29. Laban said, it must not be done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Fulfill her week, and we will give you this one also for the service which you will serve me still another seven years. Then Jacob did so and fulfilled her week. And he worked for seven years and therefore uh, paid for Rachel's uh, as his wife. And so there's other examples in the Bible where there are groups of seven years like this, but that's a really great, clear example. We also compare the timeline that we see here in Daniel 9 with what we learn about the end times in the Olivet Discourse and the book of the Revelation. We've talked about this a lot of different times, but these prophecies that we take a look at, you know, we take a look at things a piece at a time, but they don't exist in isolation. They harmonize with the rest of the prophetic scriptures. So we can see what God is talking about in Daniel 9 and his prophecies plan and program uh, for the rest of human history. We can look at how he talks about you know, things like the abomination of desolation. Okay, well, where else does the Bible talk about that? And when you compare the timeline of Daniel 9 with the Olivet Discourse and Revelation and other passages, uh, we're told in those other passages about specific lengths of days and months, and it becomes clear that the 77s refer to groups of years totaling 490 years. If you have seven years and 70 groups of them, that's 490 years. And Gabriel says, okay, God has carved out 490 years, which are set apart to accomplish God's plan. And so we're given the panorama there, the people, the place, and now Gabriel gives six reasons for the purpose of this plan. Here are the first three, 24 continues. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity. And so we should remind ourselves that these purposes and this uh, whole setting is primarily directed at Israel. This is a Jewish prophecy that uh, Gabriel is talking about primarily, God's special chosen people, descendants of Abraham. But in making an end of sin and bringing reconciliation for iniquity, it was accomplished for us as well, extended to us. Salvation is not just for the Jews, it's for anyone who is willing to believe. The cross... Was part of this 77's program. And in that incredible act, the Lord made a way for sin to be permanently atoned for, forgiven, and dealt with once and for all. What did Jesus say on the cross? He said, Hey, you know what? It is finished. We're done here. That doesn't mean that that was the end of people committing acts of sin, but he says, hey, I have dealt with sin. It's done, it is finished, and the responsibility for that debt is forever settled for anyone who is willing to receive Jesus Christ as Savior. Jesus died for all the sins, past, present, and future of the whole world for those who are willing to believe. Uh, He made an end of them, and he made reconciliation for sinful man. 24 continues, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Now, clearly, this has not yet come to pass. I don't know how you could say with a straight face, yep, this has been fulfilled. This was fulfilled after 70 AD. I'm not sure what world they're living in, but that is just simply not come to pass here. It hasn't come to pass globally. It hasn't come to pass personally. Nobody here can say that we live in a state of everlasting righteousness Paul lamented in Romans that we still have evil present in us, he said. He said, oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? And so we learn here that the end of God's plan, his plan of this 490 years, by the end, God will have dealt a completely victorious blow against Uh, sin and against death and against all of these things, and he will bring in everlasting righteousness. His plan ends in victory, not defeat. When Christ returns, he will usher in the era of everlasting righteousness. For us, sin will be gone, temptation will be gone, sorrow will be gone, guilt will be gone, uh, regret will be gone. All will be made right, not just around us, but in us, and that is an encouraging thought. 24 continues again, to seal up vision and prophecy. Now, some interpret this as referring to the end of special revelation, saying, okay, well, there's only a fixed amount of you know, uh, heavenly revelation given to us in the word of God, meaning no new scripture or prophecies that are outside of God's word are gonna pop up again. So when one of these you know, cults come out and say, hey, did, we, did, did you know we found a secret Bible? No, you can't see a copy of it, just take our word for it. Uh, we can be sure that, no, that, that's not true. <laughs> the, the special revelation has come to an end. But others see this phrase as saying more that by the end of the 77s, that 490-year period, all of God's promises to Israel will be fully carried out. He'll set a seal on it and say, done. Uh, All those promises that God made to Israel about the land, to Abraham, to David, will be completed and faithfully accomplished. God has not transferred them. Uh, God has not canceled them. He hasn't diluted them. God has put his plan for Israel on hold in the current time, but he's going to finish out this 490-year program once the church age is over. We'll get to that a little bit more in a moment. 24 continues, and to anoint the most holy. There's a lot of debate on the meaning of this sixth purpose. Some apply it to Jesus Christ. Others apply it to the temple after Antiochus Epiphanes defiled it. We talked about him a number of weeks ago. Some ascribe it to the millennial temple. Uh, We'll find out one day which one that is. Gabriel continues in verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks... And 62 weeks, the street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. Okay, so what we're gonna find here is that the 77s, which is God's blueprint for prophecy, they're broken up into three groups. First, you have a group of seven sevens and then a group of 62 sevens and then that leaves one single seven left over. Now, here we're specifically told what event starts the clock on the 69 sevens. Do you ever see people playing chess and they play with the clock? I always love that. They hit it and that's, hey, yeah, your, your, your move is on, right? And they only have so much time before, uh, before the game expires. I was talking to uh, uh, one of the kid's cousins. What would that make him to me? I don't know. My, <laughs> my wife's. Cousin's kid. Anyway, so he's in a chess club at his school, and I say, hey, so, so do you guys use the clocks, or what's up with that? Well, we play for a certain amount of time, and if, we, if it's still, you know, if nobody has won in a certain amount of time, then we switch to clocks, and we have 10 minutes each. And at the end of 10 minutes each, the game's over. And so, you know, they, they have to kick off that clock and stop it when it's important. And so we're told here what starts the clock on the first week, of or the first seven here. Uh, And the starting point is, we're told, the, the command to restore and build Jerusalem. And notice it's Jerusalem, the city. There's a reference there to streets and walls. You know, we're studying Ezra on Sunday mornings here at church, and there are a few different decrees made about Israel and building projects and things. But if you read this prophecy literally, it's clear that the starting point of the 77s is not the decree to rebuild the temple there in Ezra that we've been talking about, Rather, what we're looking at is found in Nehemiah chapter 2. If you want to see where this kicked off, it's in Nehemiah chapter 2. There, King Artaxerxes sends Nehemiah to go and build the city and the wall around the city, and that's 445 B.C. And it seems that the process of rebuilding the city of Jerusalem took a total of 49 years, seven sevens, after which the next set of 62 sevens immediately began. And we're told that the job of rebuilding would be done in troublesome times. And the book of Nehemiah records just how troublesome it was. From the time of the decree until the appearing of Messiah the Prince would be a period of 483 years. That's seven sevens plus 62 sevens put together, 483 years. A fellow named Sir Robert Anderson, he was a writer, a theologian, and a Scotland Yard official in the late 1800s. He wrote a variety of theological books. One of them is called The Coming Prince. Uh, uh, Amazing passage from that book. I'm not gonna quote the whole thing or or talk super at length about it, but in that book, he calculated the exact fulfillment of this prophecy from the decree of Artaxerxes to the triumphal entry of Christ. He makes a very compelling case that you can actually find the the physical dates for both of those events. And he tabulated the 69 sevens, uh, 483 years according to the Jewish religious calendar and all of that, he does all this math and all of this accounting and they had like a leap year thing going on too. But at the end of his calculations, it would yield 173,880 days. And then he goes on to prove how, hey, here's what we know to be the date for Artaxerxes' decree and here's where you know his, his suggestion for the date of the triumphal entry and gives a lot of evidence for it and it turns out that if those dates are correct, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a cult on the exact day, the 173rd, 880,000th day. Now, it's true, his theory is debated because everything's debated. Uh, but Anderson's work really is compelling, and you can go online and read you know, that passage free. Just look up Sir Robert Anderson, the coming prince, and you'll see how he comes to all of that. And as John Walvoord notes, no one today is able to dogmatically declare that Sir Robert Anderson's computations are impossible. And so it's altogether plausible that this 173,880 days, which made up the first two groups that are being talked about in our passage, were fulfilled to the very day by the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. And that's just exciting. Verse 26, and after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself, Cut off is legal language. Under the law of Moses, if someone was cut off, they were being executed for a crime. Uh, Jesus did not die of disease or accident. He was executed by the state. Now there it says, but not for himself. That can have a variety of meanings, and all of them sort of describe what took place at Calvary. First, the Lord did not die for himself. He didn't do anything wrong. He died for others. And we know that Not only historically, I mean, Pilate said, this man has done nothing deserving of death, so he did not die for himself. But we also know theologically, Jesus didn't die for himself. He had never sinned. He died for the sins of everyone else. Now, the words can also be translated as, he will have nothing. Well, that was true of our Lord, who had no place to lay his head, no riches. In the end, he didn't even have clothing. They took his very clothing from him, right? They cast lots for it. Third, the words could be translated as, shall be cut off, appearing to have accomplished nothing. I think that's in the New Living if you have that one with you. That certainly seemed true on Good Friday, right? His, his movement was over. His disciples were scattered. It was all done. That's how it looked on Good Friday. What did Peter say? I'm going fishing. We're done here. But then as the sun rose on Easter Sunday, everything changed. Verse 26 continues, and the people of the prince who is to come Shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Now, some suggest that this prince here in verse 26 must be the same as the prince in verse 25. Well, this can't be true if you just spend a few minutes thinking about it. First of all, we'll see that this prince in verse 26 is the one responsible for the abomination of desolation in the temple. Certainly can't be the Messiah. Uh, who is going to (laughs) defile the the temple. Secondly, we're told that the people of this prince, in verse 26, are the ones who would destroy Jerusalem. Now, we know who destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD was the Romans, and Jesus was not Roman. And so uh, it's very obvious that here we see a second prince, little p. He is the counterfeit Messiah, the Antichrist. But notice, it isn't him who will destroy Jerusalem, it's his people. It says the people of that coming prince are going to destroy Jerusalem. And so we recognize uh, from here and lots of other passages that in the future, the Antichrist will preside over a revived Roman empire. When the Romans destroyed the temple and the holy city in 70 AD, it was indeed like a flood in its effect, right? It washed all of the Jews out into the Gentile world. But now, after almost 2,000 years, more Jews have been regathered back into Israel than live anywhere else in the world. That's a big deal. Verse 27. And then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to the sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Now, Jesus specifically quoted this verse in Matthew 24, and he said it was a yet future event. He says, hey, when you see this, and so uh, this was not fulfilled by Antiochus Epiphanes, who came before Jesus. This was a yet future event, it was future to Jesus, it's still future to us. And we also learn from other passages that talk about the abomination of desolation, specifically the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus was talking, he says that this, this thing that we're reading about right here is going to precede the second coming. And so this is a yet future event. In verse 27, we see the final seven, the final heptad. It's called the final week, right? Its, it's starting point, we're told, is when the Antichrist makes a seven-year peace treaty with Israel. Uh, sometimes we make a, a small mistake in thinking that, well, the tribulation begins with the rapture of the church. That's not actually true. The tribulation begins, that seven-year period begins when the Antichrist forms a peace treaty with Israel, according to Daniel here. And there may not be a large gap in between the rapture and this peace treaty, but there's going to be some kind of gap. And so uh, just a a small little thing to file in the back of your heads. But that is what is going to start up the final week of this prophecy. When the Antichrist, the ruler of a revived Roman Empire, makes a seven-year peace treaty with Israel, boom, the clock starts again and this program is gonna be wrapped up. And we're told that what he will do is not only secure them with peace and guarantee them peace from their enemies, but he will allow the Jews to once again worship and sacrifice in the temple. But after three and a half years, he's gonna break that treaty. He's gonna enter the temple. He'll demand to be worshiped, set up a blasphemous image, and make war against God's people. We're gonna learn more about him in future chapters of Daniel. And so, this means that we are currently living in a gap between the 69th seven and the 70th seven. The first 69 were completed, and then it says the Messiah was cut off. So it was completed. Jesus died, and now we're living in a gap between the end of the 69th week and the start of the 70th week. And that's really not an unusual thing when it comes to Bible prophecy. Think of the very first prophecy in the whole Bible. It's there at the beginning of Genesis. What did God say to, to, you know, Eve and the serpent? He said, you know, your seed to Eve is going to come, and you're, you're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to bruise your head, right? There's huge gaps in all of that. There's a huge gap between Eve and Jesus. There's a huge gap between, you know, 33 years between Jesus arriving and Satan bruising his heel. There's a huge gap between Satan being thrown into hell and the cross, right? So it makes it's a normal thing for there to be gaps in Bible prophecy and so we don't need to feel weird about the suggestion that we are paused on the clock between week 69 and week 70. Notice how this prophecy is arranged. We're told the first seven kicked off by a decree. The clock stopped at the death of Messiah, now we're waiting for that final seven to begin. The starting point is the signing of that false peace, which then will set in motion the events of the Great Tribulation. Read all about that in the book of the Revelation. Luckily, we in the church are not part of the 70th seven at all. We're gonna be safe and secure in glory face to face with our Savior. In the end... Despite the Antichrist's power and his desolations, he, the desolator, will be defeated and destroyed. All Israel shall be saved, and Messiah, the Prince, will return with power and great glory, and we will arrive with him. That's good news. This is God's prophetic program. It's centered on Jerusalem and the Jews. It's on hold as of right now as God accomplishes his work in the church age, that time between Pentecost and the rapture, where God is drawing out individuals from all over the world to be a part of his bride. Once that work is finished, the Lord will once again take up this prophetic program we learn about in Daniel 9, and the clock starts again on the final seven. The Lord will do all that he said he's going to do. He's going to do it just as he said he is going to do it, if that makes sense. Now, for us tonight as church-age believers, I think there is a small devotional application Uh, sort of tucked away in our passage. And it has to do with prayer. Remember, uh, it was Daniel's prayer that led into all of this prophecy. And there in verses 20 through 23, they kind of are referring to his prayer again. You've probably heard it said uh, that God answers every prayer with either yes, no, or wait, right? And it's kind of a popular you know, thing to hear from time to time. And, you know, that may fit on a meme that you can share on Instagram, but that's not exactly what you see in the balance of the Bible. Uh, this prayer of Daniel is a good example. Daniel's there confessing his sin, you know, and, and talking about that. He's, he's talking about national repentance. He's praying about the end of the Babylonian captivity, specifically that God would fulfill, you know, what he was talking about in Jeremiah. And then what happens? How does God answer him? He doesn't give him a yes, no, or wait. Gabriel shows up, and his answer really has nothing to do with the prophecy of Jeremiah. In fact, he says, actually, Jerusalem's not only going to be rebuilt, it's going to be destroyed again. What? If you're following this, if you're Daniel, you're thinking, wait, the city's already been destroyed, and Gabriel's like, yeah, this other guy's going to come, and he's going to destroy the city. Uh, Did you not know that? (laughs) Uh, And so... What Daniel received from heaven that day had very little to do with his particular prayer in the opening verses. And so rather than say God answers every prayer with yes, no, or wait, which is just sort of a simplistic thing to say, it seems better to say that we can be sure that God always responds to our prayers. It's clear from the Bible that he's listening. It's clear that he desires to reveal himself and to speak to us and to give us understanding, but his methods don't fit on a meme. And we need to not keep pretending like they do. For Daniel, the response sort of came instantly, right? Before he was even done praying, the angel was there to talk to him and respond. But Paul, remember, he had to pray three times about a thorn in his flesh before he received any response from the Lord. Think of Samuel's mother, Hannah. She had to wait and pray for years before she received a response to her prayer. You probably have similar parallels for each of those examples in your own prayer life. You're probably waiting right now for any kind of response to some prayers that you've been praying for a long time. And so instead of being simplistic about things, we just need to think about what we know to be true. Here's what we know to be true. First, God does hear. There's never a prayer in the Bible where the angel shows up and say, hey, what did you say? We weren't really listening up in heaven. I'm so sorry. Can you give that to me one more time? We were texting while you were praying. I'm so sorry. That never happens. God hears all of our prayers. And if that wasn't even good enough, we're told, hey, the Spirit is interceding on your behalf. And those groans that you're making, the Spirit will take care of that too. And so God hears. He does hear every time, every time. Second, we know that God responds, perhaps not the way that we hope and not even in some way we can anticipate. But we can trust him and know him to be good and faithful. And so keep praying. And third, and this is best of all, here's what's true. You are precious to God. What did Gabriel say there in verse 23? He says, I've come to tell you for you are greatly beloved. That's a term that means the best or most valuable thing available. It means a precious treasure, that which is most costly. That's what God sees when he sees you. It's not just something he thought about Daniel. He thinks out about all of his children. We're told uh, in the New Testament that we are part of the beloved, that we are beloved children in God's eyes. And he has a plan uh, not just for this world, he has a plan for you and for your life. And he listens for you when you pray to him and when you sing to him. He responds to you when you draw near to him. He loves you more, more, more and he has made us his own. That's who our God is. Amen?